From Finance and Commerce, this is Beyond the Skyline, a podcast about economic development, commercial real estate, and construction in Minnesota. Above all, it's a show about what's next, creativity, and the innovation and technology that are changing how we work and shaping the future of business throughout our state. In each episode, you will meet business leaders, builders, entrepreneurs, and big thinkers who may challenge the status quo, but also make their dreams a reality. I'm Joel Shetler, your host and editor of Finance and Commerce, Minnesota's oldest business newspaper and online publication. Thanks so much for joining me. I would also like to thank our podcast sponsor, Guarantee Commercial Title. Guarantee offers a new platform for the delivery of services based on the expertise and ingenuity of a visionary team of title professionals that identifies obstacles and creates solutions that result in a successful sale, construction, or financing of commercial real estate. To learn more, visit GuaranteeTitle.net. As brokers on Collier's multifamily team, Ted Bickle and Jeff Budish have first-hand knowledge of who's investing in the Twin Cities real estate market and most importantly, why. Investors view the Twin Cities metro region favorably compared to other metros of its size, thanks to the region's stability, numerous transit-oriented developments, a general pro-development climate, and more. However, this wasn't enough to help office and retail real estate safely weather the pandemic's impact, the Collier's team says. Senior Vice President of Capital Markets and Investment Services, Ted Bickle, and Jeff Budish, Vice President at Collier's International's Minneapolis-St. Paul office, belong to a team at Collier's focused on the multifamily market. It's a market that hasn't skipped a beat during the pandemic, despite struggling with high supply costs and uncertainty in the market's future. They speak with reporter Kelly Bush. Ted and Jeff, thanks for joining me today. Um, Let's begin by talking about your careers. So what has been your path in the commercial real estate industry? And most importantly, how did you two start working together? Sure. Uh, First of all, thanks for having me. I've been waiting for a podcast like this to come out for a long time. (laughs) Something that kind of, you know, is a local thing and also revolves around real estate. So it's good to be on. Um, My background is I started in, I started wanting to be in real estate, construction, architecture, just everything around real estate growing up. And then through college, same thing. And then after college, started at CBRE and was there for about seven years. And meanwhile at CBRE, I had a, uh, some friends at Collier's and people that I knew that were trying to get me to come over for quite a while and finally decided to make that decision and joined, uh, well, started a new team essentially with Ted, myself and Andy hi uh, doing everything multifamily. And I, I, uh, I actually started at Collier's when I was in law school, so I was a clerk. I took that position my last year of school back in 2011, um, stayed on through taking and passing the bar, and then moved into brokerage, actually kind of uh, shadowing a broker who was a friend of mine, or still is a friend of mine, uh, Dave Berglund, and then moved full-time into brokerage that same year. And um, yeah, I think to Jeff's point, I worked with Kevin Doyle, who's now retired. He's a great mentor. Uh, he was preparing to move into retirement. Myself and a lot of the brokers were talking to Jeff about possibly moving over because we just thought he'd be a great fit for the, the climate and just kind of the style of Collier's. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's worked out great so far. Yeah, it's really good. That's great. So you, you guys have mentioned already that you focus on multifamily, correct? Yep. Yeah. Yes. So how, how was that done throughout the pandemic? 
give me an overview of that. Surprisingly well. I mean, we there was a little bit of a gap at the beginning, you know, January, February, when it first started getting announced that we were going to have a global issue. But we had actually gone out with a couple of projects soon thereafter and didn't really seem to skip a beat. Um, interest rates stayed low, which helped, and pricing was aggressive. There's still a lot of money to be placed. So it's, it's held up pretty well. Some of the things that, that were hiccups was really the collections. You know, there's a little bit of a gap between collections in the urban and suburban environment. Urban saw, you know, around 10% um, not getting collected or vacancies. And suburban was, you know, right around five, which is more market. So and I think well. we saw too that a lot of, a lot of cl uh, clients <clears throat> of ours in March, April, May, they were very pessimistic about the, even just the mid to long-term prospects for recovery. But as we saw a lot of the symptoms kind of alleviate in the, in the, in the summer in terms of like what Jeff was saying with collections and vacancy, um, that the market really returned in the fall. So I think we saw a huge uptick in transaction activity as we moved into the third and fourth quarter of last year. Are there any areas of the metro region where you're really seeing activity picking up right now? Maybe mainly the suburbs. I mean, in terms of development pipeline, mm -hmm. uh, we've done a lot of development work too, whether selling a land site or helping with the equity or working with developers. And um, particularly the Southwest light rail has spurred a lot of new development um, in the suburbs just in general. Mm -hmm. A couple of years ago, we saw a big rush towards Edina near Southville. And recently is more Opus Park, which is the intersection of Shady Oak Road 62 and 169 in Minnetonka. Um, and then West End has seen a lot of development over the last five years. So, so from a suburban standpoint, those three markets are really the, the fastest growing. Richfield's starting to see some growth too. Um, and then Minneapolis did see a lot, but that was that was more um, pre-pandemic um, 2015 through 2020. <clears throat> I think we saw too expectedly that downtown suffered quite a bit as the pandemic just lasted on, I should say. I mean, as we got into the later parts of last year and even moving into this year, there's just a number of different factors that are contributing to that sub-market still you know underperforming relative to previous years and that's goes the same for St. Paul. Um, I think we expect as we move into 2022 that there should be some return to a sense of normality in urban areas mm -hmm. as you see some of the employers bring workers back into the office. Retail truly opening up entertainment options being at full capacity I mean that's in getting the streetscape kind of enlivened that'll really drive tenants back into the metro areas, we think. Yeah. yeah one, one thing interesting that we've kind of noticed about the suburban markets and even the urban markets too, is there's really three groups of renters. There's the straight out of college, want to have a lot of fun renters. There's the, mm -hmm. the single people or couples in their thirties that maybe don't have kids yet. And then there's the retirees too. Mm -hmm. And the markets that have done the best or will do the best, in, in my opinion, are the ones that can accommodate all three of those renter types. Mm -hmm. And if you went through those, those four or five nodes that I just mentioned, you know, the average person can probably figure out who wants to live of those groups in those areas. Like West End, for example, can really accommodate all three of those, those different demographics. And that's why it's mm -hmm. seen the most development and been the most sustainable. Well, that's interesting. That's a good point. Yeah. Do you think there's going to be growth in those hubs that can hold all of those renters? 
Yeah, it's, <clears throat> there's more hubs than what we just mentioned, and it really yeah. has to do with walkability yeah. in the suburbs yeah. because the people that have been renting for the last five or 10 years in urban markets are the ones that are renting the suburban apartments, mm -hmm. and they're used to having a walkable lifestyle. And so mm -hmm. there's not a lot of places that can really accommodate that. And you can see cities really putting money back into their commercial nodes and downtowns to try to make that happen. Uh, but it is difficult and each yeah. site is different. And there's also a, a capacity issue like West End, there's not really many sites left that could be developed. I mean, we're selling one right now that may be the last, you know, theoretically the last site that's there, so. Oh, wow, wow, okay, that's interesting. Um, great. Well, to pivot back um, and talk more broadly about the commercial real estate industry, I just wanted to get your take on what sectors of that industry are doing particularly well right now. You know, what do you have your eye on? What are you watching? Well, the way that the product type is usually divided up is office industrial retail. Mm -hmm. And then there's a there's other, um, you know, hotels, medical and some other areas as well. Um, Office has taken a large hit, as you can imagine, from COVID, uh, and then retail as well. And what's happened is most of the money from around the country and from around the world is really flooded away from retail and office and into apartments and industrial. So that's pushed a lot of money and pushed up the pricing on those two assets. But at the same time, real estate is really a supply and demand game. And if there's no new retail being built and no new office being built, I mean, it's going to come back eventually. It's just a matter of what, how long it's going to take. And, and I think some of that you'll see converted to different uses. Like we've worked on an off, a couple of office buildings that were potentials for converting to multifamily. Mm -hmm. And we've sold a hotel that was converted to multifamily as well. So some of that is, you know, helping drive down costs on those conversions, but mm -hmm. it is a supply and demand game. So eventually everything will come back for sure. And some of that's healthy too. I think you just see like functional obsolescence in the office and probably in the hospitality space mm -hmm. and a lot of demand in multifamily from a renter perspective. So <clears throat> figuring out ways to preserve some of that real estate and accommodate a new use. I mean, that's just generally good for the real estate market. And I think on the capital side, you see too, a lot of money being redeployed from retail, from office into multifamily and industrial. So there's still a lot of money chasing real estate generally. It's just that it's being moved into different sectors than it might've been previously, or the allocations are a little bit different. And most of the people, the average, the average listener may not know exactly who owns a lot of the real estate, but a lot of it's funds. Like the example would be a, a pension fund that, uh, a, a teacher's pension group would have and they allocate their money into real estate, but from there they allocate it in different product types. So it's a lot of the same buyers and investors, but they're allocating the money to different product types. And most of them have called and said, we have a lot of allocation towards industrial, multifamily, and increasingly medical office as well. Mm. There's mm, guys in our office that do medical office work and they've said the activities picked up quite a bit. That is interesting. That's super interesting. That's something I've noticed myself anecdotally, kind of that interest in medical offices. So um, interesting you bring that up. So kind of in a, on a similar note here, I wanted to ask about um, how the pandemic has changed development and design plans. So, you know, what have you observed in that area? We've heard from developers anecdotally that they've made some modest changes to design, mostly in relation to community spaces or amenities. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you have a community room or an office center, maybe it's 
bifurcated in some sense so that people can work from a small cubicle or office if they're staying home and working in a common space. In a fitness center, maybe the area is not just one big broad open space. It's cut up into pieces so it could accommodate everybody having their own spacing within the center. But I mean, honestly, I think a lot of that's just to alleviate some concerns with the pandemic and how that plays out over the next 12 to 18 months. But long-term, I mean, I'd be surprised if there were generational shifts in how buildings are designed because of the virus. I think it could have some impact based more on people working from home. And if that's sustainable, I think you'd see, you know, unit designs accommodate, maybe not an extra bedroom, but a den space or a desk that is off the kitchen that could, you could put your laptop on and, and maybe repurposing or redesigning a community room into an area where people really could work or do conference calls from their personal space. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a shift and it probably just accelerated that shift where people are a little bit more mobile and less oriented towards necessarily commuting to the office each day. But I would be surprised if there are major impactful changes in the way buildings are designed just because of, of the pandemic. Yeah, I think the more the thing that's driving more redesign is actually the renter preferences and the costs. So the renter preferences we've seen is, is less a move away from like a concierge service when you walk in towards more of a mobile smartphone service. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the new developments you'll see, you know, the, the thermostat being run off of the mobile phones, entry systems, cameras. Um, and, and there's also an increasing number of developments that are around 60 to 100 units. And that's a little bit lower than having a full-time staff on site. Uh, you usually need like 100 to 150 units for a staff on site. And so to run these buildings through more technology is making it more efficient to run. We've seen that a trend. And then on the cost side, um, lumber costs, concrete costs, steel, everything's going up quite a bit right now. And so redesigning parking specifically and maybe doing more surface parking as opposed to underground mm-hmm. and or um, under the building parking. So still first level covered parking, but not digging into the ground. Some of those things are increasingly done to try to save on some of the costs. And I think too, with technology that was happening, like there, there was definitely a push towards making buildings more automated and less um, service specific. Mm-hmm. So I think that was happening, but now that again, that trend has just accelerated. And I think what a lot of developers are hearing too, or property managers is that the tenants prefer to have less touch. They don't want a high touch experience. They don't need a property manager or a leasing agent showing them the unit. They don't need to have someone on site for packages delivery. So you're seeing all that become much more automated or done online. Mm-hmm. And that was brought on because of the pandemic. But I think that's a, a feature that could sustain itself very well because it's, I think, for the most part, been successful over the past year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, Jeff, you mentioned one thing that I wanted to back up to. So you mentioned that supply prices have been rising. And so how is that playing out in the multifamily sector? How is that impacting, you know, development for buyer interest? Well, for example, lumber prices have, have you know, either doubled or tripled in the mm-hmm. last year or two years, depending on how you look at it. Um, and concrete prices, I don't know, but at least double, steel's double, everything's a lot higher. And so from a development standpoint, um, it really affects how you're underwriting the future growth in the market. So if you're building an apartment building and the cost to build it is, let's say, $300,000 a unit, um, that underwriting, you need to have a different type of rent 
And so historically we've had good rent growth here. So it's somewhat easy to project out what the next year or two would show. Um, but it's really kind of coming up on that tipping point where it's making it difficult to underwrite projects. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of the units that are being developed are smaller. So you can, you know, a per square foot number might be higher than, um, than what it used to be in terms of the rent. Um, and then, I, like I mentioned, the underground parking is starting to shift too. And like the financial feasibility is one part because it is getting harder and harder to justify building a project without tax increment financing or other assistance from the city, um, you know, conclusionary zoning, which is a requirement to include affordable units within a project that dampens returns on uh, new development. So there are, then those are, those are coupled against some of the construction costs rising and just general uncertainty about how much rent growth we'll experience in the short term. So it is getting harder to pencil out projects. And I think you're seeing that with some developers. I mean, I, we had a conversation last week with a group that closed on a site uh, that we sold to them in February. They were planning to break ground now in May. It looks now like they're gonna wait until fall, possibly early next year. Okay. Similar experience on a site downtown that we put under contract where that developer prefers to start next year. And a lot of that's driven by some expectation that construction costs will come down as we go into next year which is not a certainty, but I think there's just a general sense that we could get some response there. And also just more certainty about how healthy the rental market will be in 2022 and beyond, as opposed to right now. So yeah, there's definitely some, some pressure points where we wouldn't be surprised to see supply constrained for new developments in the coming years, just based on all the different issues that have been occurring in 2020 and part of this year. I mean, the, the larger conversation here is just generally inflation. I mean, there's a lot of people that are betting on inflation is gonna to continue to happen. And whether this is a long-term issue, whether this is short-term, more supply chain issue. Mm -hmm. I think the driving cost for a lot of the lumber and the, the building materials is, is heavily on that supply chain side of it. Um, I do think there is a long-term inflation coming, you know, your guess is as good as mine, but um, short term, it's really that supply chain. So certain developers are kind of waiting to hopefully, hope that uh, levels out here in the next couple months. Okay, okay, great. That was interesting, thanks. Um, so one of my last questions here is just a pretty broad question. Why are people investing in the Twin Cities? Why do they continue to invest in the Twin Cities? Yeah, I think the two features that, and this goes back to the start of the real estate, this real estate cycle, if you want to go back to 2011, it's a, a large number of Fortune 500 companies relative to our population, mm -hmm. very educated workforce, and great to good public schools. So I think as you're an investor, whether you're coming from Los Angeles, New York, Miami, Dallas, wherever it might be, internationally possibly. You look at secondary markets, which is how we classify the Twin Cities. And you say, yeah, relative to other secondary markets around the country, specifically other secondary markets in the Midwest, like in Milwaukee, Omaha, Des Moines, those types of submarkets, uh, we stack up great. I mean, we put into our investor prospectuses uh, and investor memorandums, a lot of statistics that back that up. And I think even at first glance to someone that's looking in the Twin Cities for the first time to make an investment, it just, it does, it does trend very well relative to other comparable markets. Uh, and then you've got a whole host of other more ancillary 
factors that kind of drive investor interest, like transit-oriented development, a city that's or cities around the metro that have been very pro-development or have been, um, you know, been landlord-friendly to some extent, um, stability relative to markets that around the country that fluctuate much more. And, you know, Jeff can probably talk more too on some of the other ancillaries on like culture and entertainment and things like that. But it just, it, it does, we, we get calls, you know, probably, you know, every week or other week from groups looking at the Twin Cities for the first time. And just that base explanation usually gets them somewhat interested. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of the things that the state, in my opinion, the state's done really well at, or the Metro in, in general is, <clears throat> Um, having all the major sports teams here is a big deal. Having international airport that's, I'd say, world-renowned is important. Light rail system being built. All those things for these investors, like these institutional investors, they're kind of checkboxes that say, you know, check, we have that, we can invest in this market. Mm-hmm. From there, a lot of it's the culture. I think it's the, you know, like Ted said, the education, family-oriented, um, good place to grow up. Minnesota, nice. That's one of the things that people always talk about. It's clearly not the weather, so it's, no. it's got to be some of the weather. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely yeah, but, not, especially if you that long winter. <laughs> honestly, it's often, it's often overlooked, and I think part of that is because mm-hmm. there's a lot of good, solid, local operators and investors here that are already mm-hmm. located in Minnesota, so it's really hard for out-state, out-of-Minnesota groups to get here. If you look at who's buying the last you know, 100 properties here, you know, 90% of them plus are either from Minnesota or have already been established here sometime 10 years ago. So new, new, we get a lot of times new investors that try to say they're going to enter the market. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, they do, but it is difficult for them to compete with some of the local groups here. Well, no, I should clarify too, like when Jeff says that most of those or the majority of those investors are either from here or have invested here in the last 10 years. So there are groups, many groups that are bidding on deals that we're selling. They come in second, third, fourth, fifth place and don't win an acquisition. Mm-hmm. And they're doing that for an extended period of time, sometimes multiple years before they actually break through and finally get their first asset in Minnesota. So it has, it's been very competitive. Mm-hmm. I think that's drawing more interest. It kind of, it, it's a, a cycle that benefits owners in Minnesota because you have national investors that are hearing from other national investors that, hey, this is a good market. A lot of people are looking here. It's very competitive. And that kind of breeds its own set of competitiveness. So yeah, it's been, I think a lot of that's just just through word of mouth with other national investors discussing that amongst each other. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to what we we're talking about and all the different factors that support investing in Minnesota or the Twin Cities. Sure. Well, what are your tips or hints for those national investors who are trying to get into the Minnesota real estate market? I just, you have to pay more. I think, that's, <laughs> I think the expectations that you're going to come into the Twin Cities yeah. and get a, a good deal or a steal is just not realistic. And I think, and in most groups, I think know that now, I'm probably not, if you look back five years where they think they, that the, the local market is very closely held and privately held and locally held. And I think, oh, well, I'll, you know, we can get in there and get good deals because these owners don't really know what they're doing. And that's certainly not the case. Mm-hmm. So I think is investors generally have been more educated if you want to put it that way you know it's just it's understood that this is a very competitive market and um you know i think and and we've done a good job to maintain those relationships that like i said they might bid on 10 deals for a year but usually they end up breaking through and buying something yeah and to add to that obviously coming in town is the number one most important thing when you're trying to 
you know, say you're going to be the buyer on a deal, showing up in town, talking to all the brokers, having a connection with a local operator or management company or understanding how you're going to manage the property is a large deal increasingly going forward. I think that's going to be um, something we're looking at is who is managing the properties and, and making sure the, you know, the real estate that's here is actually running as it should be. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, on a similar note, I wanted to get your thoughts on Blackstone's acquisition last month, and I'll just kind of refresh our listeners on that. So last month, New York-based Blackstone acquired a 22-building portfolio for $247 million. And so I kind of just wanted to get your take on this acquisition. What are your thoughts? You're talking about the industrial acquisition? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think part of it is what we were talking about before, where there's a lot of money chasing the few product types that are available Mm -hmm. and they are one of the largest, well, I think they are the largest investor in, if not the country, the world for real estate. Um, my guess is what they're trying to do is, is get into a market and get such a large capacity that they can start dictating what happens in terms of, um, you know, every, every aspect surrounding the investment. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not an expert. There's a guy in our office that actually worked on that transaction, Mark Colesrude, who, who could answer a lot better. But my mm-hmm. my understanding of industrial is that it's a lot. It's really driven more on supply and demand than any other product type, because to build an industrial building, there's only certain areas you can do that. There's certain areas the city designates that this can be industrial, and once that's built out, there's really no other land to build out. And once the city reaches a certain capacity. To that regard, then I think that it's you know pricing has to go up. I think too, if you, I mean, I don't know details in the transaction, but if you just look at the players involved and the fact that Blackstone's making enormous investments in the Twin Cities, that just goes back to what, the theme of this whole conversation that these large institutional players, you know, private equity players, are looking at the Twin Cities and trying to make a big footprint in a short period of time. And that's not something you would have seen 10 years ago. So there's been a massive shift from very closely held, privately held local owners to more of an institutional feel. Mm-hmm. And, that, and, you know, and that, that has, the landscape's changed drastically during the cycle. Yeah. To follow up, can an acquisition like this have an impact on the multifamily sector? I think it puts, the Twin Cities are already on the national investment map, but I think it just backs up that idea, the investment thesis generally that the Twin Cities is a good place to place funds for real estate investment. So whether it be industrial, office, retail, multifamily, I mean, the product type does matter to some extent, but it's just more generally the idea that we're getting the biggest, largest holders of real estate investing in our market, which just is a testament to how healthy, generally speaking, how healthy the, the investment market is here. Okay. Okay. Great. Well, that was everything I wanted to ask about today. So is there anything else you wanted to add in or mention? Um, I guess I would add one thing you asked about kind of what is, you know, what direction the multifamily is going and where it is it right now. I think the thing I pay attention to every day is driving in the office. I mean, during COVID, before COVID, um, there was congestion to get downtown. And I think that drove some of the um, living and working uh, rationale for moving downtown. And now during COVID, it's, you know, you can get anywhere in 10 minutes because there's no traffic. 
So every day I wake up, I wonder if I'm going to run into traffic and I haven't yet. So mm-hmm. it's time to come though. And that, that tells me that yeah. people are starting to get back to work. And uh, I think eventually that'll liven the downtown experience again. I think you see too, I mean, the streetscape, we office downtown uh, part-time. So you see like the streetscape still boarded up. Skyways are essentially empty. People aren't meeting for coffee and lunch that much. But if you look at it relative to a month ago, it is changing slowly. For sure. So I think a lot of it's just anecdotal, like your personal experience, either driving into downtown or being there. And this, I think there's positive momentum. You can tell that things are starting to change. So. Great. Well, we will leave it on a note of optimism. Then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you both for joining me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to Beyond the Skyline. We can be found wherever you listen to your podcasts. To learn more about finance and commerce, or to subscribe, go to our website, www.finance-commerce.com. I'm Joel Shetler, Editor of Finance and Commerce. Thank you again for listening to Beyond the Skyline.